0: welcome back to another episode of the TV That Changed Me podcast. The show where I, Beth Watson, explore how some of the world's biggest TV shows have shaped our lives, relationships and identity. Today we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time and The Walt Disney Company. So for anyone who's been here since the beginning, you'll remember that back in our first episode, I talked about how Gilmore Girls is definitely a comfort TV show for me and how I will go back and watch Lorelei and Rory and their shenanigans whenever I'm feeling down. And it's really interesting, this idea of comfort watching or comfort TV shows. Since it's been the pandemic, it's definitely become more cemented in our minds. The idea that everyone has their own individual show that they keep going back to over and over again. And when you read up about it, you'll find there's people who've watched Big Bang Theory 4,000 times, or those people who fall asleep watching Parks and Rec. And while the shows they choose are different, the reasons for watching them are predominantly the same. They tend to be shows that have a nostalgic element. Maybe they watch them during childhood, for example. But mainly people re-watch these shows because they're predictable. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It makes sense that in an era of instability and uncertainty and scary BBC news notifications that we want to watch films and TV where we know what's going to happen. And what genre of TV could possibly encapsulate those feelings more than Disney? The Walt Disney Company regularly releases films and TV shows that stick to the same predictable storylines, or seven basic plots. These are the bread and butter of storytelling. There's the overcoming the monster plot, which you find in things like Star Wars. There's The Quest, which is like The Lion King or Alice in Wonderland. There's Rags to Riches, which is Cinderella or Cinderella Story. If you're a Hilary Duff fan, like you know I am, etc, etc. So it's no wonder that Disney films are a source of comfort for so many people around the world when they provide us with this sense of predictability. And this is what I talked about with the guest on this week's show marketer, blogger, podcaster and Disney devotee, Mercedes Bull. She explained to me how her obsession with the show once upon a time and pretty much all things Disney is the perfect antidote to the stress and anxiety she feels in everyday life. So let's get to it. So, I just thought to start off, could you describe Once Upon a Time for anyone who might be unfamiliar with the show? Okay. So, Once Upon a Time is a kind of
1: dystopian fairy tale esque TV show whereby all of our favorite fairy tale characters from Brothers Grimm and Disney stories and Hans Christian Andersen have all been thrown into this really awfully boring sort of suburban American town. And they've all had their minds wiped. So they don't actually remember that they are fairy tale characters. And then throughout the season, we see a little bit of their life sort of pre American suburbia and then also a glimpse at what their new lives are like. So we get a little bit of juxtaposition there.
0: So that's a great description. That's what I would have said as well. And so do you remember the first time you watched it? Because it came out like 2011 or something. So what, what, what were you doing in 2011? Yeah, I remember it very
1: clearly. So this was back in the day where all the cool ABC American TV series Would come to Channel 4 Here in the UK And they would drop Like week by week So thinking about Things like Lost And of course Once Upon a Time And I missed it I was really late To the party I remember seeing trailers And Robert Carlyle Was in it Which kind of like Piqued my interest A little bit Because I love him In the Full Monty 90s classic And I just kind of thought Oh yeah that looks good But because it was This kind of Periodical week by week Release It was like If you missed an episode You kind of Didn't really know What was happening So it was quite difficult back then to catch up. And then I remember going to Walt Disney World in 2012. And in Disney's Hollywood Studios, they had all of the amazing costumes from Once Upon a Time. So they had Regina's evil queen dress and they had Stiltskin's outfit. And I just thought, okay, I actually need to check this TV show out because it looks like it would be up my, my alley. And then I remember this was a couple of years later. I'd completely forgotten about, all of this, didn't bother checking it out. And then I was in Germany at my then boyfriend's apartment in Germany, and he had just got Netflix, this brand new streaming
0: service that had launched in Europe. so so avant-garde, and it wow! Netflix. I know. I remember that feeling as well. Netflix. <laughs> I
1: remember, and it was through the it was through the PS3 or PS4 back then. So I remember kind of like meddling around with like the controller, trying to get it to work. And I saw Once Upon a Time and thought, oh, it's that show. Now's the time to watch it, and fell in love with it.
0: I was thinking about that as well when um, I talked about Gilmore Girls, my brother, and we both couldn't believe we were like, but we came to this missing episodes because we'd gone around a friend's house. Like, that's so alien as a concept to us now. But like, yeah, it was that's how you got into a TV show. You were there in the room watching the telly at that time. And yet again, Channel 4 picking up all of these like new massive American series which are huge over there, but kind of unknown to us. So, when you started watching Once Upon a Time, what kind of effect did it have on you? What um, What did you think about the show? Well,
1: first of all, I'm a huge Disney fan and I did English literature at uni as well. So anything storytelling, fairy tale is immediately going to appeal to me. And the reason that I loved it, and particularly I'm talking about season one, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about various other seasons later on. But that first season, because although you are seeing these flashbacks of, you know, the town mayor as an evil queen or the primary school teacher as Snow White in her former life, there's still this kind of mystery element of, is this child insane or are these characters actually the fairy tale characters? And I liked that you kind of don't get confirmation until partway through that first season. And I really liked seeing Disney characters in a bit more of a human light as well. So it's not as black and white as the evil queen is just purely evil. We get to see her back Story and we see that the man she loved was murdered. And, you know, we see characters that traditionally are good characters like the magic mirror. And he's kind of been scorned in the past. And that's what I really liked about it was that we get these other views of these characters and they're more three dimensional and fully formed.
0: 100% And when I've watched it as well That's exactly the impression I got In particular I found Snow White really interesting Because in the original Snow White Obviously we know uh, She's the damsel in distress She's been shunned by her stepmother um, You know, found by the seven dwarfs, All boys Looked after by then Or she looks after them And then, you know She's rescued eventually by the prince But in Once Upon a Time, however She's rescuing the lost prince in the forest And so I loved That kind of Turning the gender roles On its head Yeah is that something That you kind of Spoke to as well Yeah massively so And I think it's It's gender roles But then it's also
1: Motive So like again Talking about Snow White's character We find out later on In the series That the reason That the Queen Hates her so much Is because she told A lie Which ultimately Led to the evil Queen's former lover Being murdered So Snow White Was responsible for that As a, as a child So we get a lot more so depth but also it is challenged as you say like these gender norms are, are are challenged and then as we get into later seasons as well we see a lesbian relationship between two disney princesses or a disney princess and, a, and another fairy tale character and you know that's just never been done before and it was so innovative and the whole you know the themes that the the show talks about it looks at things like racism and discrimination and sexuality and that's just so different for a, for a disney
0: show. Do you have an idea of what the reaction was to that um, lesbian storyline between two um, Disney princesses?
1: You know, I don't because I was late to the show, so I actually don't, but I would love to look into that. And I'm sure there are articles about it. But yeah, it was it was Mulan's character that they, they kind of alluded to her being in love with Sleeping Beauty, the Princess Aurora. And then later on in the show, she actually had a lesbian relationship with Red Riding Hood, which I thought was really awesome. And again, it wasn't just, oh, here's our kind of, you know, token lesbian characters. Red Riding Hood had a boyfriend previously, so again, you've got that kind of bisexuality theme throwing in there. So it was much more realistic. It wasn't just, oh, here's like some token one-off characters, which I really appreciated.
0: What surprised me starting to watch it is actually you've these are very they are three-dimensional characters you've got the arc of their lives already from the beginning we're hearing this flashback straight away um and so I went into it thinking oh it's just fantasy it's going to be just a little bit cheesy but it didn't quite feel that way it felt really it felt well fleshed out actually
1: Yeah, unfortunately, and it breaks my heart to say this because I think season one of Once Upon a Time is one of my favorite pieces of TV ever. I love to watch it. It makes me feel good. I love the twists and turns as you start to figure out who the character's real identity is, who their fairy tale identity is. I love working it all out. And then unfortunately, as so many good television shows do, as the series go on, the plot kind of gets flakier. It becomes a little bit cornier. The CGI Becomes a little bit more budget and ultimately where the series goes in the end is not a good place. It definitely started at the top of the mountain and then sort of shimmied its way
0: down for the season finale. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it's from the same creators as Lost, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it's interesting you say that because it's definitely one of the big complaints about Lost, isn't it? It's like We lost the plot, lost what was going on.
1: (laughs) Hugely, hugely. And even, you know, anyone listening that's watched Once Upon a Time will know as well that you actually have... So Emma is our main protagonist, and she's a really different character. You know, we find out at the beginning she's been in prison, she was a single parent, she actually gave birth in jail. Like, these are not Disney themes (laughs) at all. But we have this really awesome conclusion where Emma gets her sort of happily ever after. And although, you know, in the same way that Lost has, the seasons have got weaker and weaker and weaker. You're kind of satisfied with that. You're like, oh, she got her happy ending. Let's let's end it there. But then, unfortunately, the creators did one more season, which is like a fast forward in time. And it's her son, Henry, as an adult man. And that season was so jarring because it didn't relate to any of the previous seasons. It was really unsuccessful. And that's the season that got the show cancelled in the end. (laughs) So why they didn't end it previously, you do start start to question.
0: A hundred percent. And I think that's such a, yeah, it's a huge rookie error for TV producers. Um, it's just the one, that's how, kind of how I feel about Gilmore Girls a year in the life. I'm like, oh, it was nice to resolve the storyline, but did I need to see Lorelai Gilmore talking about fat shaming? No, not really. <laughs> it's like trying to drag these like already quite successful characters into like a slightly modern age. And you're like, oh, it's okay to leave things as they were. Yeah. 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 So we've talked a bit about, let me just collect my thoughts one second, yeah. <laughs> collecting. So obviously you talked about the fantasy and that's what draws you to Disney in particular. Do you want to talk a bit about your love of Disney and where that came from? Sure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that first of all, I have to say anyone that kind of meets me in adult life probably thinks that I was part of some kind of Disney cult growing up because I am quite obsessed. And I think that interestingly, the love of Disney has grown more through adulthood, which is really bizarre. But anyway, it started at a very young age. So I was taken to the grand opening of what was then called Euro Disney in France. And that was in 1992. And I was one years old. And obviously had no control over my travel arrangements, So I completely blame my parents for my fixation with the Walt Disney Company. And then I guess growing up, Disney trips were just a really normal holiday that we used to take. And then Disney movies were kind of time fillers in between those trips. And then it's, it's kind of sad, actually, but my mum had my sister around well, my sister was born in 2000, which was obviously near the time of the 9-11 bombings. And we used to travel quite a lot. And my mum got really scared of flying, like really nervous because she had, you know, a daughter... 10 years old and a a baby. So we started going to Disneyland Paris more and more because we could drive there. And my mum felt really safe doing that. She could sort of put us in the car in our pajamas really early in the morning. And by lunchtime, we were in Disneyland. So that was one of the reasons we started going a lot. So (laughs) growing up, like throughout my teenage years, as I say, it was just a really normal place that I went. And then in my adult life, it's made me make friends and build connections with people that have had similar experiences. And also kind of looking at it like more in a psychological aspect, I suffer with anxiety and I somehow miraculously don't get anxious at Disneyland. It's like this safe bubble where mental health disorders just don't exist. So that's something that I love about it as well.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting talking about the link between sort of anxiety and film and TV. It's something I I'm kind of really interested by in myself. I think, you know, going back to Gilmore Girls, I think for me, it was, uh, have you watched, you know, Gilmore Girls? Yeah, Yeah. Okay, cool. You're, you're acquainted. That's good. Yeah. So obviously Stars Hollow is a very, it's almost a bit Disney-like in a way. It's very, it's full of big caricatures of the small town life. And it's very wholesome and it's very uh, gentle and witty. And I think coming back from school, which was like a very jarring, quite toxic place. There were a lot of sort of bullying girls and things like that. Coming back from school and stepping into Stars Hollow, it really soothed the anxieties at the end of the day. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if Disney has that effect on you. Yeah, I think that's really nicely put. And I've never made that
1: connection as well with Gilmore Girls kind of being this safe haven. But I definitely, oh, hugely. I mean, even now, as I say, as an adult woman, I've had a stressful day at work, like putting on a Disney film. And it doesn't even have to be like, you know, I think people think that I sit around watching like 1920s, like Mickey Mouse animations. But even just like a Marvel film or a Star Wars film, it's that escapism to a place that's just free of our like trivial worries because you know they need to fight an alien clan that's just descended upon New York or they're stuck in a tower by this horrible woman who climbs their hair every day like it they're just such different worlds that you can just leave your daily struggles and your daily worries and just immerse yourself in it and it's really interesting you talk about the escapism of anxiety with television because something that I notice in myself when I'm really anxious is that I'll put my favorite TV show on to kind of distract myself. And if it's one with adverts, the adverts are when the anxiety kind of comes back. So what that shows me is that for those, you know, 15, 20 minute intervals, I really am wrapped up in that television show, which is why I'm able to
0: feel calm again. I completely relate to that. That's really interesting. And in terms of, um, circling back to once upon a time, I think, um, what's quite gripping about the show is that you do have a lot of issues such as, you know, adoption. um, I don't know. (laughs) Well, what some other issues in the show? (laughs) You do have a lot of issues in the show, which are kind of hard hitting. Like there is the the adoption. There's like a lot of rivalry. There's eventually you say it talks about themes of race and sexuality as well. Um, I think the fantasy aspect of it really helps to temper that. Yeah, definitely. Like it, it, it because it's in
1: that form, because we're talking about Snow White, Cinderella, you know, Cinderella season one, she gets pregnant out of marriage and has nowhere to go. I mean, that's just so crazy, but it makes these issues accessible for younger people because they're interested because it is Captain Hook and Cinderella and Snow White. But yeah, I mean, it, it sounds crazy when you talk about it, like, oh, Cinderella's pregnant. But it makes sense because you've got Brook, which is the, the town they're living in in Maine, where they are these normal everyday people. And then you have the flashbacks that kind of slice up the, the episodes of their life as a fairy tale character. But yeah, I mean, some of the other issues like substance abuse is one as well that comes up a lot. They'll talk about alcoholism and stuff like that. Even like sexual abuse and that kind of thing as well is alluded to. So it definitely deals with some really dark themes, which is why I think it's just really different. And I like, you know, you spoke about Snow White. Being this kind of, she's almost like an outlaw, even in her sort of flashback fairy tale state. And I love that. And I think, again, that's one of the reasons that it started to lose it a little bit. So, Frozen obviously came out in 2012, took the world by storm. Of course, once upon a time, needed to get a a storyline in there that had the Frozen characters. And unfortunately, they were the Frozen characters. They even had the same dresses on that they wear in the movie. And I think that's where it started to lose it for me. So there was kind of no reimagining of these characters. They were exact carbon copies of how they appear in the animations. And unfortunately, we've got so used to kind of these twisted like deviations from the Disney fairy tale characters that when they get dropped in wearing, you know, the ice dress and the the green dress that Anna wears, it, it doesn't work.
0: And also, maybe that's an interesting point that actually uh, Once Upon a Time really twists the damsel in distress storyline. But if you start bringing out Disney princesses, which are already kind of doing it for themselves, um, you know, I'm thinking of Moana. I'm thinking of uh is it Tangled? Is that Disney? Okay. (laughs) Um, you know, the sort of modern Disney princess is kind of fighting her own battles. So I guess that's, um, that wouldn't work in Once Upon a Time because the whole point of the show is to twist that narrative. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think
1: that's really well exemplified in Merida, who is the Disney princess from Disney Pixar's Brave. And she makes an appearance and she's the exact same character because, you know, we have that famous line from Brave where she says, I'll be shooting for my own hand in a Scottish accent. I'm not going to try and attempt because she's already there. She's already not needing a print. So you're right. They, they put her in the world and it's like, well, we don't have to do anything here. We don't need to rewrite her because she's already a role model for 21st century people watching this show.
0: Exactly. Oh, that's such an interesting turn of events. Um, yeah, so we're kind of talking about the issues of um, that are brought up in Once Upon a Time, and obviously a really common trope or theme in Disney is people being orphaned or like left by their parents. I just kind of wanted to know what do you think about that? Why does that always come up? Do you know why that always comes up in sort of Disney? Because obviously you've got um, Emma Swan character, yeah. you know, I'm just getting to grips with all the names, is obviously about is obviously grown up on her own, no parents. Henry's character is adopted. So what do you what do you make of that? I
1: love that question. It's a great question. And and I think first of all, as you say, it is a huge trope in Disney movies and I do know why that comes from it or where it comes from. It's actually because Walt Disney's mother died when he was very young. And well, he was he was a young man, but his mother was such a huge force in his life that that's why we do get these moments like Bambi losing his mother, Dumbo's mother being put in the asylum kind of um, circus tent thing where she's got all the chains and everything. So that's why we see things like that in some of the movies that Walt Disney worked on himself. And then I think that that's kind of been carried through because it has become a bit of a trope in Disney films. But what I find really interesting about Once Upon a Time is that we've got Emma Swan and she's been abandoned by her parents. We see her go through the foster care system in later seasons and we kind of have flashbacks of what that was like for her. But actually the twist here is that she actually was wasn't abandoned from any sort of negative place. It came from love. They actually did it to protect her. And you don't see that in Disney stories, which is unsurprising because it's actually a really nice turn of events. But it's, it yeah, it kind of takes that idea and, and runs with it. She's an orphan because they were trying to protect her, which is quite, quite nice in a weird way.
0: No, it is really nice. And I suppose the difference is is that in a lot of films, the the, like in Bambi, the Mum is killed. And um, yeah, it's 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 normally a lot coming from a much more like traumatic plot driving place, isn't it? Whereas actually in this, it's driving the plot, but it's also it's got that love element too. And um, I was just thinking because uh, in my daytime I worked for a grief charity and I was collating uh films about loss for children and you just—it's every single Disney film. Yeah, <laughs> in every single Disney film, definitely, someone loses yeah. someone.
1: Yeah, definitely. Even the more modern ones, like we—we've seen, you know, typically in the the Disney classics that Walt well, Disney was alive for. It'll be the mother character. Then we move into sort of the Disney Renaissance period, which is when you and I grow up. The 90s, you've got all your, you you know, the best Disney movies. Let's face it, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. We see Mufasa die in The Lion King. So then it's the father character. And then in some of the more new films as well, Coco, he loses his grandmother big hero six, he loses his brother. So it's, it. yeah, it's not just your parents anymore. Disney have shown that
0: anyone can be taken from you. Exactly. Exactly. Moana, she loses her grandma. Oh my yeah. gosh. I cried for maybe about 35 minutes after Moana, I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop.
1: Yeah. I think it it can. Sometimes these films, like you feel silly because you're like, these are for children. But for me, it it was Coco and I'd lost my grandmother um, a couple of months prior. And I went to see Coco with a friend and obviously spoiler here, but the grandmother dies at the end. (laughs) um, So that's what happens. Um, But I was sat with my friend and I was crying, like, you know your normal movie cry like a couple of tears and then it turned into something completely different and my shoulders were kind of going up and down and she knew exactly why this had happened Um, and she was great the credits were rolling and she was like it's fine let's just sit here for a bit let everyone else leave the cinema and we'll go but it was because it just it touched something inside of that relationship with my grandmother and I think that as you said for children it's such a powerful tool to get them to connect to everyday you know quite difficult topics but that are so commonplace that, you know, by using Disney characters, it makes these topics accessible, which again, links to what
0: I think once upon a time achieves quite well. Exactly. I completely agree. Even though I think if I was a grieving child and I watched Coco, I'd never recover. So I think we've touched upon this a little bit, but why do you think myths and legends endure? Why Why are we so happy to watch the same storyline from a different perspective?
1: So, well, I love this question. If you asked my high school English teacher, he'd tell you some long preachy bit of information about how there are only seven stories and every story can be derived from one of the seven. And that's why we love them because they just keep us going in again and again. I think for me personally, and I guess I can only really answer this for myself, but it's definitely a nostalgia. And we know that this is across the board. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these live action remakes of classic Disney movies, smashing box office hits at the moment. You know, we've had Aladdin with Will Smith, Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watt, and they're pulling in crowds and they're making a lot of money. And it is, it's because of this nostalgia and what the Walt Disney Company do very well as well. And I kind of touched upon this already because I said, you know, as I've become older, the Disney obsessions kind of got worse. I think they've realized that with the millennial generation, particularly like, ah, now they're adults and they've got jobs, they've got all this disposable income, they can come to the cinema, let's remake all of the early 90s Disney movies because now they're the perfect age, we'll turn them into live actions, we'll get some of the biggest stars in there as well to reel in the crowds. And we're seeing it more and more with merchandise as well, like on the... um, Shop Disney website, there are these notebooks that they're selling and they're awesome. They look like a VHS and they have the original VHS covers from the nineties. And as as soon as you show that to a millennial, they're like, Oh my God, I have that copy of Beauty and the Beast. I remember the cover and you've got to buy it. So it's definitely the nostalgic element. But I think also, again, maybe there are only kind of seven true narratives. You've got your rags to riches, you've got your romance. And I think any good fairy tale, any good legend tells that story well. And they're the stories that we do come back to again and again and
0: again. That, yeah. And I completely agree. And to, even in, in all TV series, you see the same tropes trotted out. Over and over again, such as you know, Shit's Creek is riches to rags, <laughs> yeah. which is a really common trope in so many different films and stories. Yeah. Um, you know, friendships, people overcoming the same sort of like difficulties. There's only a few different stories to tell, and I think the nostalgia issue that you mentioned is so true and we love we love anything 90s at the moment just the way people are dressing and dressing more like the 80s and 90s and how their mums you know people wearing the same shirts their mum wore Um, and even you just describing that vhs notebook i'm now like okay i'm gonna need to look at where i can get one of those later because little mermaid on vhs was like my whole life as a child (laughs) yeah i'm very upset i had I
1: have the Beauty and the Beast one. I got it two Christmases ago and it's currently in a drawer in my office that I haven't been to for almost a year that I haven't gone back to. Uh, so yeah, it's just waiting for me for when this awful pandemic is over so that I can go back and
0: retrieve it. Why is your VHS in your office drawer? Because it's a notebook. Oh, the note. sorry. <laughs> I got really confused. <laughs> That was such a pleasant question. I thought you meant the actual VHS. I was like, do they have a VHS player at your work? (laughs) Uh, No, I just carry it around with me so that people know I'm a Disney fan. (laughs) That's so, oh my God, that's so dumb Uh, of me. Oh, hilarious. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So once upon a time, we've talked about the kind of good representations of um, women and the different, uh, the gender role swapping. What do you think about the sort of evil witch character and the general Disney trope of like an evil evil stepmother. Do you think that's a damaging stereotype for women or is it not that deep? I
1: do. I really do. And I think that there are a lot of damaging. As much as I love Disney, I'm not one of these like blinded fans that anything they do, you know, I put on my rose tinted glasses and oh, it's Disney. It's amazing. I do look at it quite skeptically. And yeah, I hugely think that 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 character of the evil queen is is problematic for a lot of different reasons. I also have a huge issue, spoke about The Little Mermaid, but with Ariel, Um, I saw a hilarious TikTok the other day where someone was like, I've had it with people, you know, saying that Ursula is the villain of that movie. She's a businesswoman. They had a contract. They made an agreement. Like she didn't stick to her end of the deal. So she lost her voice and, you know, lost her legs, whatever. And had to become Ursula's possession, which made me smile. But I think that what Once Upon a Time does really nicely is that the character of the evil queen, the evil stepmother, Regina, she's my favorite character from that series because she goes on such a journey and she actually starts to believe that because she is evil and she's done these bad things that she tries to reform, but she feels like she doesn't deserve love. So she kind of walks away from opportunities in life and so on. And she does kind of turn and, you know, make peace with, with everything that she's done in her past life at the end, which I really like. I love that resolution. But as I alluded to we get a little bit more depth to her, which again makes more sense. You know, of course she hates Snow White. Snow White is the reason that her her fiancé or her betrothed was, was murdered. Like it makes more sense. And I think that. Even if it is something as small as giving these characters a clear motive, it kind of human humanizes them. So we've seen as well with like Angelina Jolie's Maleficent movie, not a fan of that movie, but I like the sentiment. I like the fact that it humanizes her, gives her a backstory, gives her a clear intent rather than just... I want to kill this innocent baby because I wasn't invited to her christening, which is what the original movie from the 1950s does. But yeah, I think that looking at it as a feminist and as a woman, it's a hugely problematic character arc of of having that evil stepmother type character. Um, it, it, it kind of, it shows to me that any woman in power basically can't be nice or can't be likable. We don't have any sort of, well, we do now, but if we look at the classic Disney movies from when Walt Disney was alive, so I'm thinking 1967 and, and, and below, there aren't any sort of queen characters that are kind or human at all.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I've even heard that it's really damaging for stepmoms as well. <laughs> and it means that you join a family always kind of, you know, a little bit defensive of yourself and the fact that you're not a Disney character and you you really just want to be with this family and look after the children. So it's really, it is a pervasive part of our culture, I think. Yeah, I
1: agree. But on the flip side, if you're a godmother, everyone just thinks you've got magic powers. So <laughs> swings and roundabouts. But no, I agree with you. I think that it's kind of like the mother-in-law. Like this isn't Disney's fault, but like mother-in-laws in Hollywood and in TV are always depicted as these really like unlikable, horrible, difficult women.
0: And yeah, that's a problem. That's so funny, isn't it? It's like, it's so arbitrary. It's like stepmother, bad. Godmother, good. Mother-in-law, bad. Mother, yeah. good. But you're always dead. It's like, it's, yeah. just, it's just No, like, it is. Definitely. And sister, always conflict, but unconditional love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Obviously, we haven't talked about your podcast. We haven't talked about Chat Disney. We've talked a lot about Disney. But um, yeah, so can you tell us... Well, what made you want to start Chat Disney? Did Once Upon a Time have any fueling in that or was it more the films? It was kind of everything, to be honest. As I say, I'm just a huge Disney nut. So
1: I love the Disney content. I mean, we have Disney Plus now as well. So there's like unlimited Disney TV to access, which is great. But yeah, theme park trips, movies, TV shows, just the whole like world of Disney really. And the reason that I do it with my friend Tash. We, we do it together. We've been friends since we were in high school, was really looking at the Disney podcast that we love to listen to. They were predominantly produced by middle-aged men in the States. And we were looking for just content for ourselves that had a woman's point of view and also a British point of view as well, because it can get quite frustrating if you are really into Disney and you want to hear sort of like updates and things like that. Often you'll find that these podcasts, if you know the creator lives in California, they're going to focus on things that are happening at Disneyland in California. And we wanted to talk about Disneyland Paris, which is our park. So yeah, it just kind of came from a, a lack of, of um, representation, really,
0: for people like us in, in that community. So you've mentioned to me um, before as well that um, a lot of these podcasts are presented by men in California. What do you think? um, And we've talked a lot about kind of women and their relationship to Disney. What do you think it is that men see in Disney and that maybe these podcast hosts are interested about?
1: Yeah. Cause I think that it, I think to most people, if I kind of said that to them, they might be quite surprised. I think it's definitely, it's, it's a number of different things. I think, first of all, Men, unfortunately, do just kind of monopolize things a little bit sometimes. I think that maybe... what men <laughs> being in charge of stuff, right? I know how ludicrous. <laughs> um, I think that there's probably loads of women that would love to start a podcast, but are maybe too afraid. So, I think that's the first part. The second part is the theme park bit. So, yeah, okay, you've got Snow White, Cinderella, Princess Jasmine, but you've also got roller coasters and Star Wars and that side of things. And that does tend to attract men, typically. Most theme park podcasts that I listen to, whether they're Disney or not, are presented by men with a predominantly male audience. So I think that the theme park side of things just tends to attract men more. And then, as I say, Marvel, Star Wars, they're all part of Disney now as well. And again, predominantly, it's men that are interested in comic books. and and sci-fi. So all of those things kind of fleshed out. And it tends to be a specific type of man as well, kind of just putting people into boxes here. But it tends to be, I mean, I work for a tech company, and I would find I know that there are lots of men in the engineering part of the organization that are huge Disney fans and on my level when it comes to being a huge Disney geek, but then in the commercial side where you've got sales and marketing, those kind of men tend to be less into that sort of stuff. So hopefully that kind of <laughs> answers that
0: as diplomatically as I possibly Possibly can, yeah. I love that the tech analogy, really good. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> really good. So I read somewhere that um, "Once Upon a Time" is at its heart a very optimistic show. Is that something that you have felt as well, or is that just kind of lather from the producers?
1: No, I would say that that's true because I think ultimately, whilst it does speak to some of these quite difficult themes, substance abuse, um, maybe. I don't know teenage pregnancy, whatever it may be. There's always a positive outcome. Like you don't watch Once Upon a Time thinking that you know it's not like Game of Thrones where a character is killed every five seconds. You don't come to Once Upon a Time for that. There are sad things that happen. There are characters that perish because otherwise, I think it would just completely lose momentum. But it's ultimately is, yeah. I would say that it is an optimistic show, and you know that when there's a crisis, it's going to. Be be
0: resolved
1: and the end of the episode will end on a cheerful note
0: exactly exactly and um so finally this podcast is called the tv that changed me um if you were to say once upon a time or perhaps disney in a broader sense has changed you has it and if so how I mean, Disney definitely has. I think Once Upon a Time has because it was the
1: first time I'd seen a show that it felt like it was made for me because I'm very, I love Disney and I love fairy tales, but I also am realistic and I look at the world and the problems and the sort of social issues that we have very skeptically and also very actively. So to see a TV show that's set in the world that I love with the characters that I grew up with, where they talk about some of these social, political, you know challenging issues that was just like it was made for me so I think that that was definitely something that I can attest to once upon a time Disney in general as I say hugely helped with my anxiety even as an adult it is escapism whether that's jumping on a plane going to Disneyland or just sticking on a film I definitely would say that it's changed my life in that way it's a coping mechanism and it's made me meet
0: awesome people along the way as well which is always great. That's fantastic. And I completely relate to the anxiety side. And I think that's something we'll probably explore lots when we start interviewing people about the different shows that have changed them. So thank you so much. I think that's, yeah, I think that's everything. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, just, it's been a lot of fun,
1: really enjoyed
0: it and keep up talking about awesome TV shows.
1: I'm looking forward to listening to future episodes. Thank you.
0: our show for today (laughs) thank you for listening and thank you so much to mercedes bill for coming on the podcast you can find her on instagram at mercedes lois and you can find chat disney podcast wherever you get your podcasts Uh, as usual you can find us on instagram at tv change me or on twitter at tv change me pod we're on all your favorite podcast apps please like subscribe review tell your friends definitely give us a review on apple podcast because that's how other people find us the show was edited by me produced by me and all music was by the musical mastermind that is iora music listen to her on spotify please